Well, welcome, listeners. Welcome to our eighth segment in this uh, apologetics podcast series that I am trying to take us through to find and ascertain what the um, an actual understanding of the Word of God teaches from th- some things that have been um, just mistranslated slightly to various degrees or maybe even to far extremes. Um, some of them, maybe even that we've gone over in the first seven, that have been completely ignored. Um, and so one of these that we're going to talk about today is kind of a responsibility passage that I think we all carry, but I think is trying to be mitigated some today and even diminished, in which a lot of people are going to try to say, see, this is what the Bible teaches, um, and the concept of judgment, the concept of how we should judge or not judge other people. I hear it oftentimes. It's like, man, I'm saying these things without any judgment. Let me, let me, let me just say this real quick. The passage is going to be Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not lest you be judged, the old King James puts it. Let me just tell you, you cannot, it is not possible, according to what the Greek word means, krino, that I'm going to break down for us in just a second, it is not possible to actually state that um, in truth. To say, I say these things with no judgment. Because the word judgment has various degrees of severity to it, but its primary thing that's kind of composed within it is evaluation. I often relate it to being a fruit inspector. It's like you are looking at a piece of fruit to see if there's any deformities, if there's any defects, anything that could be harmful to the tree, or anything that is showing that the fruit is being harmed. You cannot say, I say this with no judgment, because that means that you are not evaluating a person's actions. And that is the exact thing that we are called to do. We are called to be fruit inspectors. Now, you might be one of the, the masses that is trying to use this verse in Matthew 7, verse 1, which here's what it actually says. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking... Uh, oh, I'm sorry, this is from a previous study. I was still in Romans chapter 7, verse 1, in which we're going to be talking about in just a little bit, uh, further on in chapter 7 of Romans. That's going to be in our next one. Matthew 7, verse 1 says this, Judge not that you be not judged. So the premise in which Jesus is stating here is he says, look, if I were to take this as an isolated passage, I would totally see why Jesus would be, why I would interpret Jesus saying, don't judge. Because if you judge others, then I'm going to hold you to the same judgment. So you know what? It's best to just not judge anyone. Don't judge anyone. Don't evaluate their actions. Don't pretend to know anything about it. Don't even look at what's going on. Just simply sit back. Let them live their life and you live your life because if you bring any judgment towards them, then I'm going to bring the same judgment towards you. And you don't want that, so you might as well just keep your mouth shut and your eyes closed. You know there's actually a proverb that speaks against that? About the one who winks his eyes brings evil to pass. That means the one who closes his eye to evil, you're part of the problem. So when you don't say anything, when you don't evaluate somebody's actions and their deeds and their, their, the things that they say, then you know what? You're part of the problem. Here's what I'm going to go on and talk about. Here's this word krino. Here's what it means. To distinguish. To decide judicially. To try to punish or to condemn. The concept of crino can have a wide array of various things that is kind of understood within this word. 
One of them being to decide judicially. It's essentially to evaluate right and wrong and to make it a decision as to if the action was right or wrong. And it even carries a connotation of condemnation or punishment. And that's going to come into play in just a little bit because of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to go there in just a little bit. But I want to read the entire passage of Matthew chapter 7, 1 through 5 to get a little bit more context to what Jesus is actually stating. Because I'm going to tell you, he's not saying that you are never to judge. He's just saying you need to do it rightly. Here's what he says. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, it, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrites. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You know what that last part is? Judgment. He says, don't judge hypocritically. Don't judge in such a way in which you've got a log in your one eye, but through your other eye, you're trying to say that, hey, I see a speck in your eye. You better get that out of there while you're doing nothing to take the log out. Jesus literally says, first, take the log out. Get your heart right. Then you can see clearly to help your brother get the speck out of his eye. You see, Jesus isn't saying that we shouldn't judge, that we shouldn't evaluate, that we shouldn't even bring punishment, that we shouldn't even look at somebody's actions and match them up to the, to the perfect fruit tree of Jesus Christ and, and, and say, you know what, I'm not going to say anything to you because I'm just not supposed to judge. He says, you're just supposed to do it rightly. This is what he says in John 7, 24. Let me flip to it just real quick. And as I've done many times before, I'm going to use my phone. To try to do it so you don't hear the pages flipping in the speaker. It says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Those are the words of Jesus. Now we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 5 and 9 through 13. And a very mistaught and misappropriated passage today in the church. And I would say a missing passage, but a needful passage for us to take a very hard look at. It's church discipline. I don't think it happens near enough today. And the reason why is because, for one, I don't think we fear God near enough. And I don't think that we have a distaste for sin near enough. We seek to justify. We seek to almost say, oh, it's, it's okay. That's just being of the flesh. And you know what? We're all of the flesh and we're all going to sin. We're just sinners saved by grace. So we don't ever want to punish anybody because we're not actually pursuing holiness. And we don't actually hold to a standard of holiness. So therefore, we... Minimize sin. And we think that it's okay. We allow so many things out there because we're just like, we're just sinners saved by grace. That's just what we are. Let me, let me tell you something real quick. That's who you were. It's not who you're intended to remain. You were a sinner that was saved by grace, as Ephesians 2 points out. But you were not supposed to remain that way. You're not supposed to be content to just say, oh, His grace will cover it. It's fine. You are not supposed to remain that way. And if you choose to remain that way, then two things. One, you need to become under an evaluation. Or two, maybe you didn't really even come to know him at all. Paul Washer says that if I don't have a new relationship with sin when I came into Christ, 
then I don't have a new relationship with Christ. And I would wholeheartedly agree that if in your unregenerated state that you are making a practice of sin and then you say you came to know Jesus and then you continued in that same practice of sin in a professed regenerated state, you didn't really come to meet him. So if you're okay with sin, then you got to question whether or not you actually even came to meet him. So going into this, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 9 through, what did I say, 13? I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty. Notice that word that's used there. Guilty. That's a judiciary term. That's something that is to be decided judicially, to be tried, even punished. Sounds like judgment to me. And it's going to even state that explicitly here in just a second. He says, if somebody is bearing the name of brother, even if, even if they're really not, even if you, you can look at their heart and you can obviously tell that they didn't really come to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if they bear the name, if they onomazo, is the Greek word used there, if they utter or profess that they are Christian, then you hold them to the plumb line of truth and the example of Jesus Christ. And he says, if anyone bears the name of Christ, of a brother in the faith, here's what he says to do. If they are guilty of sexual morality or greed, I find it fascinating. We just got done doing a series in our church called Money Matters. And I think it was, we kind of navigated through the series really well in talking about a very difficult topic in money. But if there's one thing that I felt was kind of diminished a little bit is the severity of greed. Because 1 Corinthians 5 says, if somebody says that they're a Christian, but they're guilty of greed... Avarice, excess, wanting more of this world. Whatever degree that is. He says, then they fit in the same category as people who are sexually immoral or idolaters. Revilers, drunkards, and swindlers. You see, we minimize oftentimes some of these quote-unquote lesser sins. And we don't actually understand that Jesus is including all sin the same. If somebody claims to be a believer and they are guilty of sexual morality or greed, they're chasing things of this world, they're working 60 hours a week at the expense of being part of the fellowship, at the expense of serving Christ, at the expense of serving their family. And let me just tell you real quick, side note, bunny trail, going out and working 60, 70 hours a week to provide for your family is not what God has called you to in its fullness. There is so much more that he's called you to. Sure, there might be seasons where that's what he's asking you to do. Sure, there's seasons where God might say, you know what? This is the place because I have a reason for this for a very specific purpose. But that's not what he's called you to for the totality of your Christian life. That's living more like a civilian than a soldier. You know, it took me a long time to realize that because I was brought up in the same American Christianity that many of you who are listening to this might be brought up in. It took me a long time to realize what Proverbs 23 talked about. It says, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. It took me a long time to realize that John, I believe it's in John 6, where he talks about 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. It talks about man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. My life 
Jesus created me and saved me for more than a job. Though that might be part of the equation, it's not the fullness of my equation. And so while there might be a season that God has you working 60, 70, 80 hours a week, I know of coaches in the NFL who would put in over 100 hours. People, a guy named Tony Dungy would claim to be a Christian, put in over 100 hours as the head coach of the, of the Indianapolis Colts. He would sleep in his office. You know how much time then that he spent at his house with his family? Very, very little during the season. I'm not a big proponent of family as your first ministry, but I'm going to tell you it's a lot bigger ministry than your job. And that ministry requires time spent with them, not absent from them so you can give them a paycheck. So that's my bunny trail side note. Let me get back to this. He says, not even to eat with such a one, verse 11, 1 Corinthians 5. He says, I don't even want you to eat with somebody who claims to be a Christian, but is guilty of practicing these things. Whether you can say 100% that they are or that they aren't. If they utter that they are a Christian and they are guilty of these things, do not even eat with them. Don't fellowship with them. Don't associate with them. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Meaning, don't have a disciplinary action. This is where the judiciary term of punishment comes in within the body, being exercised into it. Crino is the same Greek word that's used here. He says, I don't even want you to eat with them. If you, didn't, if you don't know this already, listen to what he says earlier on. In verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the, of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Disciplinary act of judgment from somebody who claims to be a believer if they are guilty of walking in a way that belittles the name of Christ. Are there steps to take in that? Absolutely. Is it just a foregone conclusion that as soon as you see it, that there's guilt pronounced upon them, that you do this? No, I think there's steps that you need to take before you get to that point. And we need to make sure that we do that. But my point is not to talk about church discipline in such a way as to go through the steps and the process of how that works. My point is to simply state that the word clearly states that we are to judge. Because here's what he says. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. I mean he seems to say it very clearly. That if I were to take just Matthew 7 1 on the surface. Then I would say we shouldn't judge. But if I had to include 1 Corinthians 5. Then I can't get away from the notion that within the church. If somebody claims to be a believer. Then yes you are supposed to judge. But you better make sure. That you are working on that log. I'm not saying that you have to be perfect before you can actually pronounce any sort of a judgment or an evaluation on another person. What I am saying is that you need to be working on getting that log out of your eye. So that you could say like Paul says that to this point I have a clear conscience before both God and man. I'm not aware of anything that's against me. Paul was making sure that he took pains to have a clear conscience. That he died daily. That every day he woke up and he said, Lord, show me if there's a log in my eye that I'm not seeing. Because I want to make sure that I'm going out there representing you well. And that if somebody is in sin, that I don't have this, this check in my spirit because I've got 
issues in my own life that I'm not dealing with, I want to be able to go to another brother because I, I want to preserve the integrity of the gospel and of your reputation, of your name amongst the world because it says in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are the ambassadors of Christ. God makes his appeal to the world through us. So if I am choosing to say, you know what, I'm content with this log. And how dare me hypocritically go to somebody else and say, you need to get the speck out of your eye. This is what Jesus is teaching. He says, first remove the log so you can see clearly. And this is the premise of this whole entire thing. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. You see, the concept is, is we need to be walking as spiritual people. And this feeds into what I'm going to go to in Romans chapter 7. You have a choice between being a fleshly Christian or a spiritual Christian, one who walks by the Spirit. A lot of people, I've heard Paul Washer even say, I respect the guy immensely, but I believe he's totally wrong in this. In 1 Corinthians 3, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but he talked about, he made this statement. He says, there is no such thing as a fleshly Christian. I totally disagree. Totally disagree. You and I have a choice every moment of every day as to whether or not we're going to walk in the flesh or whether or not we're going to walk in the spirit. Every day, moment by moment. Am I going to follow the spirit or am I going to follow the flesh? And Paul writes about this in Galatians chapter 6, 7 through 10. We'll read that in the next segment or in the next um, portion of this segment. You have a choice, flesh or spirit. And if you choose to walk in the flesh, then do not be surprised if people evaluate your life and in love, because they love your soul, will come and tell you. And do not quote to them Matthew 7.1, because to me, if, if I'm going to in love bring some sort of an evaluation to a believer, and I'm going to say, here's what the standard of the cross is, here's what the image of, dry, of Christ is, and you're not meeting that, brother. We need to rise up from that. We need to do better. What it talks about in James 5, 19-20, when it says, If anyone among you wanders from the way of truth, let him know that whoever brings back a wanderer from his sinning, it says, will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. It says, if I, I want to be able to, in love and through love, be able to go to somebody and say, Hey, you know what? You're missing the mark. You need to make sure that you're hitting this, that you're aiming better, you're aiming higher. You need to get rid of this. And at first, if needs be, do it with gentleness and respect. And if needs be, go deeper, maybe do it with a little harsher hand. But the point is, is I want to be able to go to somebody and have the kind of love for them that cares about their soul. It says this is wrong. I want to preserve the integrity of the cross and of the gospel and the reputation of Jesus and not tarnish it by saying somebody can claim his name and live in such a way that tarnishes that. I encourage you to go through the Old Testament and read why God sent the prophets to his people. You might find a very interesting study. And so we are given the task to protect against rotten fruit, to love others, and to love the tree. Because rotting fruit, here's the deal guys, rotting fruit can ruin good fruit. Remember we talked about bad company corrupts good morals? Rotting fruit can ruin good fruit. You know, if you have a rotten um, like tomato or something like that, you put it in a bag full of good tomatoes. You know what happens to the good tomatoes? It doesn't turn the rotten one good. 
The rotten one turns them all bad. In fact, if I remember correctly, there's a gas that's emitted. And I might be getting this confused, but I'm pretty sure this is accurate. That if you take this, like a brown paper bag, and you put a rotten piece of fruit in there, and you put a good piece of fruit in there, there's a gas that's emitted from this rotten fruit that will actually then absorb into the good one, creating it to become rotten. The, the premise, guys, is all littered throughout Scripture. Rotting fruit can ruin good fruit. And this is why it talks about in 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. Again, same passage that we were talking about earlier. Um, going on into 6-7. through 7. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, but the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He says, you know what? If you get somebody among you who claims the name of Christ and they're guilty, you got to cleanse it. You got to flee those youthful passions. You got to make sure that you're running this race with people who are actually running and not trying to hold you back. So the premise, guys, is is when he says, judge not lest you be judged. He says, if you're going to judge hypocritically, well, you've got a log in your own eye that you're not doing anything to take out. But then you're going to go judge somebody else for the same thing. He says, you're a hypocrite. And that's not judging with right judgment. You need to live in such a way in which you are walking by the Spirit so that you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye who might be stuck in the flesh. But keep watch on yourself, as Paul says. So with this, hopefully that answers the question. If you ever hear anybody try to say that to you, judge not lest you be judged in response to you gently and lovingly coming to them and saying, hey man, this, this is not representative of Christ. And they bring this verse to you, don't, don't take it um, personally. It's what people have been trained to state in response to try to justify their sins. Kind of like the concept of legalism today. Is there a sense of legalism that would be wrong? Yeah, absolutely there's a sense of it. But not in the way that many people use it today. K.B. Hannon has a quote where he says that we have a problem in our church today. We mistake obedience for legalism and bondage. Many people who want to try to say that you're just being a legalist because you're trying to get them to obey what the word of God teaches us through Christ. All they're doing is trying to justify the sin that they love more than they do Christ. So don't be surprised that if you gently or even lovingly or maybe even firmly try to go to somebody and say, Hey, you know what? And I love you too much to let you remain in this because I know that small little, little amounts of leaven will always rise. And I want to take this out now. And I love you and your soul enough to come and say something to you about it. Don't be surprised that if a fleshly person hears that, that they use Matthew 7, 1. But now you know the context. Going on, he talks about in Romans chapter 7, 17 through 20. That's going to be our theme passage in this. Romans chapter 7, 17 through 20. If you have uh, opportunity to have your Bibles opened up, I would encourage you to do so. Um, here's what he says. 
So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now here's the thing that many people use this passage as. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, they use that as as a passage to justify the fact that I'm just a sinner. You see, Paul sinned. You see, Paul, he had the desire to do what was right, but he just couldn't do it because he didn't have the ability to do it. Let me just tell you, that is a very poor interpretation of this passage. That is an attempt to minimize one's um, need for pursuing holiness and giving them an out clause when they don't. This passage, I, I want you to look at something real quick. I've, there's a couple ways that you could look at this passage. One, Paul's referencing his, his um, life before Christ when he was of the flesh. Um, and you could probably make an argument for that one, but that's not how I see this passage. I see this passage as Paul talking about in Christ, we have two voices that are speaking in our heads. You have the flesh and you have the spirit. And if I choose to put the flesh on the throne, if I choose to allow the flesh to have a voice in my life and I heed that voice and I put that flesh on the throne, then I cannot imitate the person of Jesus Christ. However, on the flip side, if I put the spirit on the throne and I heed the voice of the Spirit, then I have everything that I need. And this is why I talk about this passage right now, is because I've heard this passage taught many times by many different people, that this is just showing that even Paul couldn't do it, but praise God, he delivers me anyways. Praise God, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, and that when I sin, as we're all going to sin, then God just delivers me anyways because his grace just covers it. Let me just tell you, that is not what Paul is stating here. Because it's not what Paul states everywhere else in Scripture. So one thing I want you to notice in these four verses, all of this is in the present tense. Every part of what Paul is referencing is in the present tense. He is not referencing past tense, which to me signifies that he's not referencing his old fleshly man apart from Jesus Christ. It seems that he is referencing the here and the now. In my flesh, Paul says, again, verse 17, going into 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me, not dwelt in me, but dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. You know, Paul talks about many, many times all throughout the scripture that the good that is in him is Christ in him. Paul says there's these, almost like these two, two entities living within. One is against the other. And the other is against the other. They keep you from doing what you want to do. Right? And we're going to read that. Almost verbatim of what Galatians chapter 5, 17 through 18 says. Or 16 through 17. He says, In my flesh nothing good dwells. So if I choose to let my flesh have the throne, which a Christian can choose to do. I'll show that to you in just a second in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. A Christian can choose to let the flesh have the throne. And man, the flesh is so deceiving. 
He can mask himself to make it look like it's something of the spirit. Say, take take uh, um, anger. You can have fleshly anger. You can have righteous anger. And the flesh, man, when you give into that fleshly anger, he can make it seem like, man, that is a heavenly indignation. You got to be so careful because the flesh can really disguise himself. But here's the reality: in your flesh, there is nothing. That God draws from to imitate Jesus Christ. There's only one source that God will draw from in your life to imitate his son. And that is the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. That is the only source. And Paul says, in my flesh, even being in Christ, I still have this flesh. There's nothing good that dwells in that side of me. It's all corrupt. Every bit of it. And in the flesh, if I choose to live by the flesh, if I choose to sow to the flesh, as Galatians 6 talks on, then I'll just reap corruption. That's all it's going to be. I have to choose to walk by the Spirit. This is where I think a lot of people miss the case. And and, and maybe we just try to chalk it up to, well, if you're really saved, you're just going to walk by the Spirit. That's just what it is. I disagree. I totally disagree with that notion because otherwise, why would Paul bring the warnings, including himself, to it? Would he question Paul's salvation? What does he say in Galatians chapter 6, 7 through 10? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will you also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you'll reap eternal life. And we will reap if we do not give up. Paul talks about 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27. He says, I discipline my body and I bring it under subjection and control, lest after preaching to others, I myself would be disqualified from running the race. That's a warning that Paul gives. Going on to 1 Corinthians 10, he says, We must not put Christ to the test. If it's just as simple as, well, if you're really saved, you're just going to walk by the Spirit. You won't give in to the flesh. Then why do many Christians use this to say otherwise? Well, I'm just going to be of the flesh. That's just who I am. I'll just serve the law of the flesh. But praise God, he delivers. It's a a contradiction. You say on one hand, a, a person who is born of God will walk by the Spirit. And they won't make a practice of sinning. But then we want to use Romans 7 to say, well, you know what? I'm just going to make that practice of sinning because I'm just of the flesh. Which, by the way, guys, I've heard people say that exact thing about this passage. If your doctrine contradicts itself, you're wrong. It's really that simple. God's truth does not contradict God's truth. So let me explain to you, I think, a little bit more of what this passage is really stating. Galatians chapter 5. Here's what Paul writes. By the way, same author. Who's who's writing Romans. He says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Isn't that fascinating that Paul says that still within a believer, there's still two. You have the spirit and the flesh. The problem before being a believer is that you didn't have the spirit. So all you had was the flesh. You were victims and prey to the flesh within. And sin had a heyday with you because you didn't have the ability to overcome. But in Christ Jesus, you still have your flesh, but now you've been given victory through the Spirit of God to overcome that flesh. But the choice is yours. The choice belongs to you. You could even phrase it like this. But I say, choose the Spirit. 
And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Sound familiar to Romans 7? You see, in his flesh, Paul says, I don't have the ability to do anything. And yet Philippians 4.13 says that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Do you see the dichotomy there? You see the contradiction? If I'm to take Romans chapter 7 to say, you know what? We just don't have the ability to overcome the flesh. This is our lot in life. This is who we're going to be. We're just going to be failures. And we're going to repent. And then we'll be failures again. And we'll repent. And so goes our lot. All the way until the day we meet Jesus. I'm going to tell you, I think that's a heretical approach to this. Paul says very plainly, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So it seems to be a far cry from whatever he says here in Romans chapter 7. He says, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Yes, in the flesh, you do not have the ability to, um, to mimic and imitate Jesus Christ. As 1 John 2, 6 tells us that it's our obligation to do. But in Christ, you have everything that you need. But the choice is yours is if you're going to walk by the flesh or by the spirit, which is going to rule your life. The fleshly nature or the spiritual man of Christ who rules your life. Who do you put on the throne every morning? Who do you put on the throne in the afternoons? Who do you put on the throne at work or when you're sitting with your family at the dinner table? If you even eat dinner with your family, that's a whole other side topic. Who is on the throne of your life? Is it Jesus, the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, that gives us the victory over what the flesh wants to accomplish in our life? Or do you let the flesh rule? When you wake up in the morning and you know that God is saying, wake up and spend some time with me, but you're like, oh, I'm too tired. And you roll back over and you turn your alarm off. Who rules the throne of your life because if it is your flesh then you will not imitate Christ and you will not have the ability within yourself to do it but if the spirit of God is what is guiding your steps and what you are submitting to then you have everything that you need to imitate Jesus Christ let me say that again you have everything you need to imitate Christ because the Spirit is the well that God will draw from to imitate His Son. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3a says this, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. Remember we talked about previously, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. When you are walking according to the Spirit, there's no reason to bring judgment upon you. You're walking according to the Spirit. But if you choose to walk according to the flesh, then there's every reason to bring judgment upon you. But Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. Notice he was calling them brothers. But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Notice their position. Where are they at? They're in Christ. But what does he say? You're still of the flesh. This is why I disagree with Paul Washer saying there's no such thing as a fleshly Christian. I totally beg to differ because scripture begs to differ. These are brothers in Christ, but they're choosing to walk according to the flesh. So they are remaining infantile in their faith. 
Same thing as Hebrews chapter 5 when he says you should be teachers by now, but I have to bring you milk because you're still infantile. You haven't progressed to solid food yet. Thus, you don't have your powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And you're running the risk because it's the ones who are weak in the faith that Satan's going to try to attack the most. To pull them away, to bring them unto apostasy. Which is why Hebrews chapter 6 says what it does. He says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready. For you are still of the flesh. Your position is in Christ Jesus, but you're walking according to the flesh. And Paul's essentially telling them, you need to repent. Look what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, by the way, that's a term reserved for the church of Jesus Christ. You don't find that term anywhere else in the New Testament save one time in Romans when it's referencing the Jews. And even that is a very specific reference to them. But beloved is always a term that is used for the church of Jesus Christ. He says, beloved, I urge you, I appeal to you, I'm charging you, I can't implore you enough. As sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. What is Peter telling the church to do? He says, look, you have these passions of the flesh that are still alive in you even after you come to Christ. And you need to wage war against them. You need to to silence them and their voice in your life and choose to walk by the Spirit. I'm emphasizing this because I want you to understand that Romans 7 is not your lot in life. Romans 7 is not what you're relegated to. It is not who you're going to be and it's not who Paul was. Paul was a man who lived above this. Paul simply telling us today that if we choose to put flesh on the throne, that will be my lot in life. But it's not, what, not because I don't have a reason to rise above it. Because you and I who are in Christ most certainly do. We have a choice of which voice we will heed. I quoted earlier Galatians 6, 7-9 when he talks about that. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you reap eternal life. Notice there's something you have to do to reap eternal life. That's a topic for another time. And Paul says, and we, including himself, will reap if we. Notice I could say that this would be a proof of their salvation that they're actually just going off and they're sowing to the Spirit and it just proves that they were really saved. If Paul says, and we will reap if you do not give up, or if you will reap if you do not give up, eliminating himself from the equation. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul says, and we will reap if we do not give up. Paul says that I also have an obligation, as he talks about in Philippians 3. To make sure that I do what by any means possible, I will make sure I attain the resurrection from the dead. Let me just tell you, why the heck would Paul say that if it was already a guaranteed promise? If he knew that in the end times, that he was going to attain the resurrection from the dead, and it was unconditionally given to him the moment he prayed the prayer, once saved, always saved, then why the heck would he say that by any means possible, I will attain the resurrection from the dead? He says, I'm doing everything that I know that I need to do in this life to make sure that in the end, I will attain the resurrection from the dead. He says, not that I've already attained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
And he says, I want to make sure that I attain that upward call of God in Christ Jesus in the end. But I have a job to do here in this life. And I will not subject myself to be ruled by the flesh because I know its end. And I will choose to walk by the Spirit every moment of every day to make sure that on that last day when my name gets called, that I'm there to open that door, which is what Luke 12 says. Do you notice it's not Jesus who opens the door to us? Jesus is the one knocking. The responsibility to open the door rests on you. It says when he comes like a thief in the night, he's going to come. Whether it be in the first, second, or third watch of the night, he is going to come. And nobody knows the day or the hour, not even Jesus. And when the Father says go, then he comes and he's knocking on the door. And it's your job to stay awake. To make sure that you hear that knock. And you open the door to him at once when he comes. That's our job. Paul recognizes that. Man, please don't use Romans 7 as a justified attempt. To say, I'm just going to be a sinner. Praise God, his grace covers it. Let me just tell you, it doesn't. You might think that it does because that's what you've been taught to think that grace is. But it doesn't. Grace is the empowerment to overcome sin, not overlook it. And it's a means in which God has given to us through Christ to be able to accomplish what He is wanting us to accomplish. But whether or not you receive that grace is actually conditioned upon you. There is a requirement to receive grace. Did you know that? 1 Peter chapter 5, 5 going on into 6 and then even in James chapter 4 I believe it's verse 7 and 8 when he says that God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble that means that you actually have to do something in order to receive grace therefore it cannot be unequivocally unmerited in all capacities you have a job to do and let me just tell you if you choose to walk by the flesh and you give in to your fleshly desires that wage war against your soul you will not receive the grace of God But if you choose to humble yourself and repent from those things and choose to put on the Spirit and not be double-minded any longer is what it goes on to talk about in James chapter 4, then God will extend grace to you to overcome your failures of what you have done. Mercy is what is overlooking some of those things. Grace is what empowers you to turn from those things and to walk in the newness of what God has given to us in His Spirit. Romans 8, 12, verse uh, 8, 12, and 13 say this. So then, brothers, notice this is right after chapter 7. And he goes on, he talks about these things. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Meaning, if you read the footnote and you you look in the King James Version or you look at verse 4, it says, for those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If you walk according to the flesh, you most assuredly can come under condemnation to, to various degrees. I know that because five times in Scripture, in Scriptures that are written specifically to believers, he says that you can come under condemnation. And while the Greek word might be slightly different on some of them, and some of them is almost identical, it just has a suffix of ana attached to it. That's it. Anakrino is the Greek word. Or you could say krima is a Greek word that's used there for condemnation. You can come under condemnation as a Christian. If you choose to walk according to the flesh. But if you put to death the deeds of the flesh. Through the spirit of God that's been made to dwell in you. Then you cannot. If you walk according to the spirit. Then you will not be judged. You will not come under condemnation. 
It's a very simple concept that I think we have completely abused today. And I talked about this in one of my other segments. But here's what he says. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You see, the only person who can do that is a believer. The option is you. Or the option is yours. And it's up to you as to what you're going to choose to do. Will you choose to walk by the flesh and so reap corruption? And even as what Romans 8.12 says, if you choose to live according to the flesh, you will die. Notice he's not talking about unbelievers here. He's talking to believers. And you might like, well, that's, that's impossible. A Christian can't really die like that. You know, that, that's not possible. I would beg to differ. James 1, 13 through 15, it says that each person is tempted in the Lord by their own desire, and desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when fully grown, brings forth death. You know, the only person who can bring forth death from sin and awaken sin and make sin alive is a Christian. Because Ephesians 2 says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were already dead. So the only person who it is like physically, like specifically impossible is a believer. It's the only one who can give birth to sin. And it says, and when sin is fully grown, if flesh has overtaken to the point in which the spirit has been totally silenced, it brings forth death, which is a Greek word, thanatos. So I'd encourage you to go look it up. I've already talked about this concept in one of my other segments. But the point is, as guys going back in, this, in chapter 7, verse 25, it says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It says, who will deliver me from this body of death, this flesh that is in me, that, that is such a strong voice? Who will deliver me from this? Praise God that he's given us a means of victory through the Lord Jesus so that now in him and through him, I can do all things through Christ. Praise God he's given me the spirit to overcome the flesh so that I don't have to live like this. I can choose to walk by the spirit and put to death the deeds of the flesh. This is why he then goes on to say that our victory was the spirit that God has given to us to overcome the flesh. If I choose to utilize him in my life. That's why it says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The choice is yours and mine of what we will choose to do. And if we choose the flesh, you will reap corruption. Phthor is the Greek word that's used there. Go look it up. But if you choose to put to death the deeds of the flesh and choose to walk by the Spirit of God, you will reap eternal life in the end. It's what Paul was aiming for. It's what he was striving for. And may it be what we also strive for. So in linking these two passages together, don't be offended if somebody comes to you in love and with the truth of God's word and they bring an evaluation into your life. Because what they're seeking to do is to bring you back from your wandering from the way of truth, which ultimately could save your soul from death if you repent. So judgment really is a beneficial and needful thing. Just as it is to put to death the deeds of the flesh and walk by the Spirit through Christ that I've been given the strength 
to be able to achieve what God has called me to do because all things are possible for him who believes. Y'all be blessed.